Hi, and welcome to Match Cut, a movie podcast where we take two movies with the exact same rating on IMDb and break that tie. My name is Aaron. I'm here with my friend and co-host, Matt. Hello. Uh, This episode is built on bucking tradition and the status quo, the music in your heart, and singing about your feelings. Brush up on your Yiddish, call your mother, and dim the house lights for the sound of music and Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, So what was everyone's experience with these movies before everyone? It's you. What was your experience (laughs) with uh, this movie before the podcast? Just cultural osmosis, really. Like, uh... Well, when we were to you know spoil the lead, when we were watching The Sound of Music, I was like, oh, I know this song. Oh, I know this song. Oh, I know right. this song. Like I'd heard all these songs just throughout the years without really going, you know, and watching the film. Yeah. So that, that was interesting. And then uh, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, you know, obviously I'd heard of it. You know, it's a legendary uh, musical production. But um I had uh, been in a, an all-men choir in high school, the same high school that you went to. And mm. um, let's not dox ourselves, of course. <laughs> uh, and um, there was uh, uh, a holiday concert that we did. Like, actually, that was my last concert for them. Or no, it might have been the first. Whatever. Anyway, one of the holiday concerts, the winter concerts, uh, we did a song that is from the, apparently the stage play version of uh, Fiddler, but is not in the movie, which I was severely disappointed in. <laughs> yeah, my, my disappointment is immeasurable, and my day was ruined. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, I can imagine it's disappointing to be like, okay, here's the thing that the the song I know so well. Oh, it's not in here. Is this is this credits? Do they do it after this? <laughs> yeah, the whole three hours. I'm like, it's the next number. It's the next number. <laughs> nope, never. Came. Yeah. The song for those curious is "Biddy Bum." I think uh, at the very yeah. least, it's inspired by it or something along those lines. Yeah, they they sing like they use "Biddy Bum" in the um, "If I Were a Rich Man." Well, isn't that more like yeedy, 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 I think it's bitty, bitty bum. I, I could be wrong. I mean, it's a, they're just sounds. <laughs> so for me, like these movies were something I watched a, a lot in my childhood. My mom is very into musicals. She would play this for us. She would like sing the songs to us. So I've seen both of these movies like, a bunch of times in my childhood and then kind of stopped saying, watching. By the way, when you're saying us, you're referring to your brother, correct? Yes. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> <laughs> us, my familial unit, watched them a bunch and then probably stopped watching around like 10 and then. I've seen Sound of Music a couple times since then, I think, uh, but not Fiddler. So this is my first time watching it in a while, but definitely a history of it before. So fun fact about these two movies, uh, as we do every time, because I like it. Uh, They are separated by uh, two degrees of bacon. The lead actors are Julie Andrews and Topol. Topol was in Before Winter Comes with Sir Anthony Quayle, who is in The Tamarind Seed with Julie Andrews. There's your connection. However... The two productions of this of these shows, the stage versions, are linked by the actor Theodore Beichel, I guess. B-I-K-E-L. Apologies to him. 
if I'm getting it wrong, but he originated the stage role of Captain Von Trapp, um, the patriarch of the Sound of Music family, and was best, but was best known for playing Tevier, the lead character in Fiddler, uh, in over 2,000 productions. So technically, they're separated by one degree of bacon, the films. The, the stage plays are, which are kind of the films, like they're editing. They're like film, but without cameras <laughs> and cuts and scene transitions in the same sense. Very true. Accurate. Technically correct. <laughs> the best kind of correct. <laughs> So I also I also believe these are the two highest rated movies we've done on this podcast so far. Uh an admirable 8.0 for both of them, but one must be better than the other. So let's talk about it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so The Sound of Music is a 1965 film written for the screen by Ernest Lehman and directed by Robert Wise. Ernest Lehman is best known for his writing of this film, as well as North by Northwest, Sabrina, West Side Story, and many others. Director Robert Wise is known for several science fiction movies, which I was unaware of before this, uh, including The Day the Earth Stood Still, The Andromeda Strain, and the first Star Trek movie. He's also uh, done some musicals, obviously, including working previously with the writer Ernest Lehman on West Side Story. So they had act. This is their second movie together. Gotcha. Uh, so we'll do a quick, uh, quick summary of the movie, uh, in case you don't choose to watch all three hours of it for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the story focuses on Maria, who has longed to be a nun since she was a young girl. Yet when she became old enough, discovered it wasn't all that she thought. Often in trouble and doing the wrong things, Maria is sent to the house of a retired naval captain, Georg von Trapp to care for his children. Von Trapp was widowed several years before and was left to care for seven rowdy children who have run off countless governesses. Maria soon learns that all these children need is a little love to change their attitude. Maria teaches the children to sing, bringing music back into the hearts and home of the Von Trapp family. Unknowingly, uh, Maria and Captain Von Trapp are falling in love, except there are two problems. The captain is engaged to another woman, and Maria is still committed to the church. Their personal conflicts, however, soon become overshadowed by world events, as Austria is about to become is about to come under the control of Germany, and the captain may soon find himself drafted into the German Navy and forced to fight against his own country. Although probably not in the Navy, because Austria is landlocked, but how is there an Austrian Navy anyway? I th- is it just on the Danube? Saying- like a, a river navy? <laughs> I mean, it's a probably a strategic river. You probably have some ships in there, or at least big <laughs> guns to fire at him from the land. I'm not really sure. Maybe he retired to Austria. No, I'm pretty sure he is Austrian since he flies the Austrian flag in that one scene, and that's a bit of a, a harumph and a hullabaloo from you know Nazis. You know those real <laughs> nice guys. Yeah, quality individuals. Really. <laughs> There's there's bad people on both sides. Let's just get that out of the way. Yeah, let's let's hear both sides uh-huh. of what I'm sure is a well-reasoned argument. Yep. Definitely <laughs> those things are all true. Um I I feel like I should mention at some point like this movie kind of has special significance to my family because uh my grandmother uh lived in Austria and fled the country 
pretty much at this time before the Germans came in and was uh, some of the last people out before the borders closed. So a little bit of familial relevance. Smart that they got out before the borders closed. Like, yeah. I mean, we've t- like, this is kind of a digression and more into history now, but I think I've talked with you or I've very much uh, talked with our mutual friend, Kurt about it, that there were so many events leading up to, you know, like, you need to get out of here events because it's not going to get better. Right. So many people just didn't chose not to go or couldn't find like the courage or the, the will to leave. It's just mind boggling uh, to me. Like after the crystal knocked, if you don't know what that is, it was a night where the, the Hitler youth and the SA uh, went around and like destroyed uh, Jewish businesses and uh, vandalized and, uh, like, destroyed just everything they could. And there was no repercussions for it from the police or the the government, of course, because the government enforced it. They told people to come out and do it. But Mm -hmm. even then, when that happened, the borders were closed. So after that happens, why do these people stay? Not to say that the the Holocaust is their fault or anything, (laughs) but, like, this, this is clearly... Uh, a sign that things aren't getting better mm-hmm. and they're not going to change and you should get out if you have the the ability to. And honestly, if the ability to is just getting a ticket on a, a, a train into France, into somewhere else, that that would be good enough. Yeah, it can be real tough to leave the country. I know like for my grandmother, uh, like they had a connection in New York who was going to like kind of meet them and help them kind of get settled. I guess it didn't really work out that way for her. I mean, obviously she made it through all right, but it it can be tough to just flee a country, especially your home country. I mean, it it's just weird to me because, you know, my great-grandfather, he immigrated from uh, Sicily fleeing starvation with his wife, but like, I guess it was just a thing that you you didn't go to America really unless you had familial connection in America. Mm-hmm. Specifically, America. Obviously, people you know settled everywhere, but it seems right. that the the typical fleeing point was to go to the New World. Right. Well, the Von Trapps make it out in this movie. Uh, actually, after the borders are closed, they flee over the mountains, but. That's the end of their story. <laughs> the beginning uh, takes place in those same mountains. And uh, I, for me, at least, like seeing real scenery in the background was kind of refreshing. I think like the last musical I'd watched before this was The Wizard of Oz, uh-huh. which you see scenes that are like, OK, that's a soundstage. <laughs> that's a great Matt painting you have there. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and opening in the mountains I, I, with what I assume are helicopter shots. Uh, they didn't have drones a, back then. Right. And it's doubtful or very that, tall cranes. It's <laughs> doubtful that it was a crane shot. <laughs> they just dropped the camera from a tree. It's like, well, we can get this shot once. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that kind of brings to the point, like, how distracting would it be to, like, try to at least lip sync, uh, you know, singing when a helicopter is <laughs> like, like flying close overhead. 
Yeah, I I did look for some like uh like rotor wash in the grass just to see if like okay you know how close is this helicopter? It may it, it was at least far enough that the grass wasn't like blowing in every direction underneath uh, Maria. Yeah, well the other thing that you get uh you know that people don't really realize about old film is old film quality was really good. We've just seen it so degraded from you know scans and uh you know copies of non-masters that when people mm-hmm. are watching these old films on blu-ray quality like we did you know you see a lot of that that rich depth that you know film files not like us uh <laughs> masturbate over constantly talking about the you know the 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 purity of real film how there's something real there to it yeah, especially coming from like I'm sure you know a bunch of people watch this on VHS for the first time probably like you know VHS is is okay but then you're watching it on like a 24 inch you know TV or, or smaller and you know that that same movie quality doesn't really come across until you have something like Blu-ray where you can capture the the fidelity of film. If you were watching this on VHS it'd be two films. It'd be two cassettes. It is a long one. I mean, we well, we can get into it. Both of these films are like three hours, like not even exaggerating, literally three hours. They both have intermissions. <laughs> that's uh, that's that's something that's uh, part of a bygone era. I really feel like uh, what was the last film that had an intermission that I saw that was newer? Monty Python, The Quest for the Holy Grail. Yeah, but that's isn't that like a joking <laughs> intermission? It is a very joking intermission. Uh, but that's that's not all that new compared to these films. I'm thinking that's like true. the the most recent one I can think of in my mind is the Grindhouse double feature of Planet Terror and uh, Death Proof. Yeah, that's what I was going to bring up as as a serious answer. But for some reason, I'm thinking that maybe uh, no, it didn't. That uh, the Hateful Eight had a uh, an intermission. It, I could have used one in all honesty. Yeah. Not that it was terrible. I just like, it was a long film and at the end of it, you're like, I'm glad it's over. Not that it was, Oh, it was terrible. Get me out of here. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I've the last intermission I actually took in theaters was, uh, when the first Avengers movie came out, I went to a screening where they played all the movies leading up to that which at that time was only six and you could kind of like do it in a day. I hear they're doing it again now for Endgame, and it's like 24 movies and it's just like, it's like 58 hours. It's insane. It's absolutely nuts. That, that would be insane. Like that's gotta be like, okay, you you watch this many movies in a day. It's, uh, it's happening right now. I would assume they have to start it like now to be able to do it in business days up to the lead up because it ends yeah. with Endgame. Yeah. Yeah, we're recording this on the 19th, so it's it's coming up. Um we should talk about the sound of music though. Do we have to? <laughs> mm, there's a lot of movie there. I feel like we should touch on some of it. So, you know, the the thing I liked about it is a lot of the musical numbers, you know, they're they're timeless. Like again, what I was saying is Oh, I, I this this song. Oh, this song. Oh, this song. Oh, this song. I know all these songs. The problem is they keep reusing the same five songs over and over. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, even even the very opening to the film is just a medley of all the songs. It's it's very much like this is a stage musical brought to screen. Yeah. You know, we have that we have this orchestra in the pit, you know, they know these 12, 15 songs and that's what we're going to play. You brought up uh, when we were watching it or not that long after that, you know, it feels like a very old school musical where like, okay, now we're going to have a musical number and now we're going to have a a dramatic number. And now we're going to have, it it felt very beat by beat. You had to do these things. Yeah. I mean, and, and yeah, even down to the intermission where it's like, here it is from the stage play, you know, head to the lobby. And all the intermission was really accomplishing was a passage of time intermission. Like, they they just used it to get rid of a middle part of the story to get back to where the like the 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 plot should should take it. It felt very yeah. old school theater intermission. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I feel like some of the pacing in this movie is is very much like super fast forward, then super slow, then super fast forward and super slow. Because like if you look at the captain's attitude, uh, Captain Von Trapp, Georg, his attitude towards like Maria and singing and like turns around like almost instantly. Like he's he's ready to when Maria comes back and the kids are all in their their clothes made out of curtains and they're getting off this boat and they all fall in. It's all ridiculous. And then he's like, you know ready to throw him just back in the lake. And then like the next scene, they've bought an entire puppet show. They're in this previously unused room They're You know, there's like 15 puppets in that scene. Like that can't be cheap. That was a fun scene. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. The thing for me that is really, you know, hard about the Sunday music is like some of the high notes stick, but you could fit the, the overall story into the, in the film in half the time. You oh know? yeah, definitely. It, I don't feel that it, it used its time as well as it should. There, there definitely felt like a lot of like dragging moments and just like ponderous moments of just like, well, it's there because it was in the stage play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, the moment for me watching it the second time, some background about how I, I consume these movies is we both watch them together uh, talk about them and I go back and watch them usually on two times speed or one and a half times speed <laughs> to just go through the movie, refresh my memory before we record and take notes. And right around the two hour mark, which was probably like the hour and a half mark for me, Maria comes back from the from the convent. Uh, you know, she's ready to become the governess again. It's this huge happy moment. All I can think about is, holy shit, there's still an hour left in this movie. Like. <laughs> I got, I got stuff to do. I got to go. Um, you don't really see these get, you know, rebroadcast anymore, both of them, which is a shame in, you know, one, for both these films because they are classics. They are, you know, kind of pillars of the genre in many, in many mm-hmm. respects with, you know, casts that have lasted or not lasted in certain respects. But certainly The Sound of Music, at least... Christopher Plummer and Julie Andrews, like those are names that like heavy hitter names in the acting industry. Yeah. But just due to the length, you will not see these on even the premium channels on TV. You definitely aren't going to be able to watch it at any reasonable time frame 
on commercial television. I couldn't imagine what that would be like. Yeah. I mean, if you figure like an hour and a half movie gets stressed, you know, it's like a half hour for every hour and a half of advertisements or whatever. Three hour movie, you're extending that out to four hours with ads. Or they just jam 30 minutes of ads in that intermission and then come back. I mean, it would... I couldn't imagine trying to watch this on commercial television just because of how many ad breaks there would be. It would make a long film feel even longer. Yeah. Did you, they made a remake of this movie, right? I I didn't watch it, but they was did? It, it was Sound of Music, I think. Quick Googling. Yeah, they did. Um, they did make a uh, TV version of it. Sound of Music Live with Carrie Underwood. I never watched it. Apparently they like were going to, as the name implies, do it live, you know, actual singing, actual, you know, it's a play brought to yeah, TV. Yeah, yeah. Let me just see if they have a runtime. Three hours. <laughs> it's 180 minutes. Yep. <laughs> Faithful as ever. That was a live TV event. So they at least did it once. Well, you got to wonder though, were there commercial interruptions in that? I would imagine so. I would imagine they might cut away, you know, if if they're doing the whole production live, like eventually they're going to have to change sets or costumes or whatever. Yeah. So they'll probably cut, cut away. That was actually they... a thing that uh, NBC was doing for a while. It was an NBC production for those not Googling along with us. <laughs> they also did another one that featured, uh, what's it? Who was that? Uh, Nightline host, uh, Brian, something Brian Jenner. Not Jenner. Uh, no. Uh, shoot. <laughs> he he got in trouble because he was like, our helicopter got shot at. And was like, that's not what happened. Oh, uh, that was Dan Rather, wasn't it? Nope. I know for a fact it's not Dan Rather. Oh, no. He's the he's the, the prettier one. Uh, <laughs> Brian Williams. Brian Williams. His daughter was in one of these... NBC stage production live telecast simulcast things. Uh, Godspeed to me in the future editing that Googling session out. (laughs) (laughs) As well as being on Girls and being in Get Out. Another movie I haven't seen. I know. I know. I run a movie podcast for God's sake. I don't run it. I barely hold on. (laughs) But you run it more than I do. (laughs) <laughs> sure if there's a percentage of running uh, but yeah they i guess they tried several live i think they did a peter pan maybe i that's I'm not the one really that sure. she was in i believe oh, okay okay yeah. yeah then they probably did i i could see this getting shown on tv like maybe once a year or something you know as a special special event you know gather the family make some popcorn watch a three-hour movie <laughs> I just, I think it's, I think you said it, that it's, it's just too old school and it's, Mm -hmm. it becomes unapproachable and un, uh, what is the the phrase I'm looking for? Uh, whatever it's, it's just, it's just too hard to get into and enjoy the same way that, you know, I enjoy other musicals, even old musicals, like. You know, I would say that Oklahoma is a more enjoyable musical than this. Mm-hmm. Of course, the version of Oklahoma I saw had Hugh Jackman as Curly, and it was amazing. 
<laughs> I think I left halfway through Oklahoma because my girlfriend at the time got sick. <laughs> so intermission, we just ducked out. I've never seen the second half of Oklahoma. Oklahoma becomes a state. Holy shit. Spoilers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it, uh, another part of this movie that kind of drags is uh, when they intentionally start stalling at the end, at, like the recital. <laughs> oh, God. And it's just like, all right, movie, now now you're just now you're messing with me because. So, yeah, that recital that, that, you know, it's this big cultural festival to celebrate Austrian culture and heritage and, you know, show off local talent that um, the, the Von Trapp's uncle is like setting up to try to, you know, wheel and deal. you got to get a sense when you meet him that he's a bit of a, a flim flam guy, a bit of a, a fly by night, but like a good spirit. You know, he's the. The, mm -hmm. the 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 doting uncle that you know never really settled down not like their the not like Georg who is the the prim and proper Austrian military man yeah and he he totally uh, Uncle Max totally cops to just being a freeloader it's like oh, yeah, yeah. I'll show up as soon as you, as long as you keep feeding me so yeah that, that, there's something refreshing about a freeloader who like that is a character you don't get in modern cinema. Like that was like a, like almost a standby character of that era of filmmaking the fifties and the early sixties, you know. Like, uh, gosh, uh, I feel like that character could fit in easily in uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know. Like mm -hmm. one of the like that's like the people that uh, she dates around with that isn't Paul Varjak. It reminds me of uh, what's the guy's name from the uh, Popeye cartoon? Uh, gladly pay you, Wimpy. Thursday for wimpy. Yeah. We'll gladly pay you Thursday for a hamburger today. Uh, it's Tuesday. Mm. Could never get the hang of Thursdays. I think, I think especially talking about prim and proper, uh, Christopher Plummer, there was kind of moments in this movie where he like looked out of place for the movie. Like he fits in with the, like the time period, the 1930s. He's not that picture of Ben Affleck and, shakespearean where with this guy has definitely held a cell phone before <laughs> it's it's not that kind of disconnect but i think he has a very serious look for this movie even though he's like the serious character in the movie i got a real um ewan mcgregor look out of young christopher Plummer. <laughs> i mean i, I some can of, see some it. of this yeah some of like the stares into the middle distance i'm like oh this is the, the the Star Wars pre sequel, the pre sequel uh, prequel. Wow, got Borderlands on the brain, you know. <laughs> I I definitely feel what you're saying, and you know that might be actually owing to the fact that they're both English actors and came up, I believe, in English theater, and so that could just be an expression that in English groundlings classes are taught like that. Yeah, quiet English stoicism. <laughs> Sounds right. Quiet desperation is the English way. Oh, that album's great. <laughs> it's Dark Side of the Moon, uh, if you're not familiar. Gosh. Fantastic. Uh, as an aside with that, that song has been playing with um, as a cover by, uh, I think, Mumford & Sons at work recently. <laughs> huh. Yeah. I I should check that out. Oh, speaking of speaking of songs, I, I meant to 
send you this early so i wasn't gonna put you on the spot but do you have a favorite song from this movie something that stuck with you or well i mean stuck with me uh like so like you know the the hills are alive with the sound of music the titular song Mm -hmm. you just know it by you know at least that first verse and the way it sounds again through cultural osmosis um yeah other ones that edelweiss i mean owing to the fact that they play it like 12 times <laughs> yeah um i guess we'd we'd seen in some of the trivia first i'll just give a general recommendation like go check out the trivia page for the sound of music on imdb because it's a fantastic read but i guess um Edelweiss uh, was written like <clears throat> pretty much as the play was being put on because they realized that Von Trapp didn't have like a song of his own. It pitched as this Austrian folk song. It's totally not. It was just written for this play. But that was also the song that I was humming like after watching this movie, <laughs> much to my coworkers' dismay. <laughs> okay, you brought that up that like you... <laughs> It really messed with your coworkers humming Edelweiss. <laughs> yeah. And then obviously favorite things. Like that's a song I've heard so many times that like I know oh, it yeah. decently well enough to like be able to like sing along with it. So there's definitely something to be said for this film having cultural significance to the point where you've heard these songs before out of the context of the film because they are just enjoyable songs. Yeah. And also you hear them like three or four times in, in the play itself. That, that is the, that is definitely an old style of play of musical mm-hmm. where rather than having distinct musical numbers from one another and maybe like one, a reprise or something like that, or variations on something, but giving it a different tone and a different, like emphasis yeah that's that's something you don't get in plays anymore which i think is to the benefit of modern plays that you know at least every song sounds different enough yeah some some things do change for the better uh one of the things i noticed in this movie on my on my second go around um when after the von traps flee the um the recital to escape the nazis the nazis are chasing after him they take refuge in the convent and the Nazis pull up in these like big old Mercedes. I swear the horn honks the like first two notes of a few of my favorite things as it pulls up. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know if that was added later, but it like fits in with this like dramatic reprise of a few of my favorite things. Nazis, not one of my favorite things. Just going to put that out there. No, no. Um, up there uh, when with uh, when the dog bites, <laughs> I'm at least feeling sad. <laughs> um, I think I kind of registered that as well. Now that you you brought that up, but also it could just be that it's in the same key as car horns honking. Most cars honk in the key of F. I want to say that lines up with what I've heard. Without googling, I'd I'd say final answer on who wants to be a millionaire. Yeah. The most American car horns honk in the key of F. Thank you, Forza Excellent. Horizon Games. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes people ask me, like, how do you know so much? It's like, I don't know anything useful. <laughs> I just know what 
what key ho- horns honk in. I have approximate knowledge of many things. <laughs> exactly. Including a ton of movie and TV show references, even if I haven't seen the movie. <laughs> Which is kind of, you know, again, I'll, I'll just to unfortunately belabor the point is this movie I feel is spoiled because of the cultural trappings of the film. You're going to hear of uh, my favorite things probably before you see this film as an adolescent. You'll hear it. Yeah. Either someone will sing it to you. You you heard it on the radio. It was in some other movie before you see a sound of music. Yeah, references or you know, maybe it was on Family Guy or Robot Chicken. I guess that's like kind of dating myself, but oh, to be early millennials, <laughs> those are the kind of things I could see it like pop up on, or you know, what are kids these days doing watching? memes on the internet they're, they're doing the tiktok i believe uh i could see like a few of my favorite things getting like a trap remix or something you would probably be the one that remixed the trap <laughs> version of it if, <laughs> if i had the knowledge and tools i would do it immediately after this look, look if there is a a trap remix of the german marching song erica there is definitely a trap <laughs> remix of <laughs> sound of music music <laughs> i'm gonna say almost certainly any other uh any other thoughts on the sound of music uh i felt and you we both like multiple times like how much longer do we got on this you know like mm-hmm. we definitely felt the time and again i i think the thing that really hurt it was the repri- so many reprises of the songs like um yeah. The sequence where Maria is, you know, helping the kids and and like, you know, endearing herself to them, that is a fine sequence because the songs and 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 the singing and that's a do re mi by the way, which I used to do mm-hmm. in another choir I was in as a vocal warm up. I was like, isn't this from something? Just turn to the nearest millennial, they shrug, they don't know either. <laughs> but like uh, so I knew that very well because it was a vocal warm up that I did, but that was a, a fun sequence also showing, you know, them, you know, bonding and all that, but it feels like there are two films going on in this film. It feels like there is a musical happening and then there is a dramatic film happening and rarely do the two intertwine. Yeah, there's the uh, there's the the ball that Georg throws. I can't remember in in honor of his engagement. I believe so. I'm a little sketchy on those details. Yeah, something along those lines. Uh, I can't remember. Max is the one that like suggested, I believe. Mm -hmm. And um, that's where Georg dances with Maria for the first time. You can see kind of the budding relationship occurring and the the affection that is growing and you know you get nice scene like that like okay it's fine to have that as an aside because they're dancing privately but then it's like here is another little dramatic moment where uh future nazi comments on the fact that he is flying the the traditional austrian flag and then let's stop that and have another musical number yeah definitely in both of these movies like the ending kind of comes i feel like crashing down around them they're both they're both very abrupt ends. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, I would say this, this ending is less abrupt, but because you don't have an actual, like, dates going on, you as someone, like, can't know, oh, it's getting closer and closer to the Nazis annexing Austria. So you don't, but you get definitely get the sense that things are escalating. There's the uh, the the young boy that is uh, interested in the oldest uh, von Trapp daughter. Uh, Rolf, yeah, Rolf. Where he starts out like a a messenger, like a basically a boy scout for the Austrian military, and then like the one of the next times you see him, he's in Hitler Youth uniform, mm-hmm. and he he does a, a Sieg Heil. They're definitely showing more and more of it getting worse and worse. Yeah, it's it's definitely well written and it's introduced well, and I mean it's a good movie and it's or it's you know it's a good play, it's a good movie, it's got great music. It just could stand to be like an hour shorter. I mean, you could probably definitely do an edit that is an hour shorter, and you wouldn't lose much in terms of you know storyline. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's uh, that's our thoughts on the sound of music. The takeaway: it's really long. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, we'll be back in uh, just a minute to talk about uh, Fiddler on the Roof. So we'll see you back here. See you back here. Don't worry. See see you back works. Welcome back to the Match Cut Podcast. I'm Matthew with uh, my co-host Aaron. Now we'll be talking about Fiddler on the Roof. Fiddler on the Roof is a 1971 film written for the stage and screen by Joseph Stein and directed by Norman Jewison. Joseph Stein is best known in movie circles for the adaptations of his own stage plays, Fiddler on the Roof and Interlaughing. However, he has also written several other well-received plays, including Rags, Zorba, Plain, and Fancy. Is that... Zorba and Plain and Fancy? Is that one play? It's or Zorba it... and Plain and Fancy. Okay, so there we go. <laughs> director Norman Jewishin is a fairly prolific producer-director, best known for The Hurricane and The Heat of the Night, Moonstruck, the original Rollerball, which is really weird. Interestingly, after <laughs> I, directing I had the very... to put that in there. <laughs> after directing the very Jewish Fiddler on the Roof, Jewishin's next movie was Jesus Christ Superstar. So he just needs one about Muhammad, and then he's got all three Abrahamics. <laughs> the the original trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> At the beginning of the 20th century, Jews and Orthodox Christians lived together in a little village of Anatevka in the pre-revolutionary Russia of the Tsars. The milkman Reb Tevier is a poor man that has raised five daughters with his wife for 25 years, Goldie. When the local matchmaker Yenti arranges the match between the older daughter Zeitzel and the old widow butcher Reb Lazar Wolf, <laughs> Tevier agrees to, with the wedding. However, Zeitzel is in love with the poor tailor Voltel, and they ask permission to give Tevier ask permission from Tevier to get married, which he grants to please his daughter. Then his second daughter Hodel and the revolutionary student Perchek decide to marry each other which Tevier also reluctantly accepts. However, with Petrik, when Petrik is arrested by the Tsar's troops and sent to Serbia, Holden decides to leave her family and homeland and travel to Serbia. Still technically her homeland. It is in Russia. <laughs> it's uh, Siberia. Siberia, whatever. <laughs> Serbia, Siberia, Eastern yeah, Europe. Potato, potato. To be with her beloved Perchek. When his third daughter, Shava, decides to get married to the Christian Fedka, 
Tevier cannot accept this and considers Shava dead to the family. Their personal conflicts, however, soon become overshadowed by world events as SARS troops evict the Jewish community from Anatevka. So, what is your experience with Fiddler on the Roof? You did uh, mention before that your mother would sing songs from uh, from The Sound of Music. Did she sing songs from Fiddler? Yep. Uh, matchmaker, uh, If I Were a Rich Man. Yeedy, 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 yeedy. Sunrise, Sunset, all popular choices for uh, me to hear as a kid. Uh, definitely two of the two of the strongest songs, I think, in this movie are Matchmaker and If I Were a Rich Man, which are back to back in the movie. Yeah. And are a really good like one, two, you know, before this movie starts dragging as well. You know, I, you say that, but I think we both agreed and I feel it definitely that honestly, Fiddler did not feel like it was dragging. When we got to the the uh, intermission, I was like, "Oh, it's the intermission already." Mm-hmm. It and definitely then, it definitely felt a little quicker. Um, but sorry, go ahead and finish your point. Well, and then when it hits the end, like we we stopped it once to see how much longer was left, and literally there was just ten minutes left. Yeah, and so it was like, "Oh, this is a, a lot brisker pace." The pacing is much better in this film, and I think it owes to the way the music is done. The music is done with the more modern style of people singing their emotions. They're singing when they're wh- what they're feeling and what they're thinking. Also, it's a little more humorous and a little bit more. It's less in a, inapproachable than the the first film is. Very basically, uh, Sound of Music is wearing a three piece tuxedo, and Filler on the Roof is a t shirt and jeans. Fiddler on the Roof definitely has like better movie sensibilities to it. And uh, oh, I I should add real quick. Uh, apparently there was another version of this movie which was edited for time and I believe came in around like just over two hours. Uh-huh. So they did do that to this movie. That's not the version we watched. We watched the original glorious three hours, but definitely fiddler is more of a movie rather than like a stage production put on film yes uh the whole opening scene where uh tevier is kind of describing anatevka to the the audience but he's mm-hmm. technically speaking to god i mean yeah so he, he talks to god a lot in this movie which is fair he's jewish <laughs> yeah it's definitely it's there's like the comedic sensibilities in this movie are more modern. Like it only came out what six years after Sound of Music. Yeah. But they had they had kind of seen, I think, kind of the beginning of the end of like the musical movie. Like I think it really started with um singing in the rain. Yeah. And musicals kind of had this big arc in in film. And then this I think was kind of on the tail end of it before we get to stuff like Greece, I guess. <laughs> but also, uh, another point, uh, The Sound of Music is a Rodgers and Hammerstein production, which those are like, those are big names in musical theater, but they had a very formulaic way of looking at the the scripts and and producing the, the theater. It was, you had to hit these beats at these times. Uh, right. More modern uh, sensibilities came about. I don't. Uh, people like uh, West Side Story. Who is that? Uh, Leonard Bernstein. Uh, mm-hmm. Composers and playwrights like him kind of changed the pacing. Yeah, it's tough to describe, but when you watch an old musical, 
it's just like, oh, right. This is a musical ass musical. Right. Like we were saying, like with the same four songs, you know, or more than that. But you know what I mean? The same songs done over and over. Which, interestingly enough, like uh, Oklahoma was the first musical to change the uh, the the format of musicals. It used to be very much, and now is a musical number, and then we will get back to the serious dramatic acting. Oklahoma was the first musical to incorporate the the characters' feelings, emotions, and the story into the song numbers. Like the reason they're singing is because they got something to sing about. The reason that this number happens here is because there's, you know, something to say with this song. And they don't they don't forget that the song happened because, you know, it's now no longer the musical section. Uh, something that I really liked about this is in the opening uh, musical number, is that Sunrise Sunset or is no, that's a... Uh, it's a tradition. Tradition! <laughs> that's the one. Uh, they're they're intercutting musical numbers with some diegetic sounds uh, informing the beats of the song, as well as uh, Reb Tevier kind of going over the history of Anatevka. And what I think we both agreed we liked the part where um, he's talking about a horse that was sold like years back, <laughs> and yep. and so he's like everyone gets along fine. You know, except for this one time when this thing happened, but it's all good now. And he goes, it was 12 years old. And then he starts a <laughs> yeah. huge argument with everyone in the village that he just laughs at. It, it was it was a great moment that established his kind of character. Yeah, as as a little bit of a shit stirrer. Yeah, but it, like everyone <laughs> likes Tevier. In a, everyone yeah, in a, in a good way, in a good way, as much as that can be in a good way. So I, it definitely has a better pacing, but for me, and granted, I did this to myself. I watched it again within like a week, um, right about the part they got to, um, the dream sequence in the cemetery, which a fantastic, the first time I watched it, like that was hilarious. Yeah. Um, the second time I watched it, I'm like, oh, we're, we're still in the cemetery. Okay. Okay. I, I I can see where you're coming from with that. that. That sequence drags a little bit. That sequence, I mean, it's establishing. It's it's important to the overall story. Like, he has mm -hmm. to do that and tell this story about a, uh, a dead grandmother uh, or yeah. great aunt uh, to Goldie, his wife, to get Goldie to uh, agree to breaking the match with Reb Laser Wolf and uh, Seitzel. Yeah, the first like kind of time they go against tradition, the you know major th major theme of the play. I guess we should talk about Laser Wolf, one of the best names I think in cinema. Like when I first heard that, and like we had the subtitles going, like, <laughs> hold up, guy's name is Laser Wolf. Like, dude is an action hero in a retro modern eighties themed movie. Yeah. We gotta call it Laser Wolf. <laughs> that is definitely like a Stallone character at some point. My name's Laser Wolf. I'm here <laughs> to fix the problem. It's perfect. It would be the it was in an alt in an infinite number of alternate realities, instead of Stallone doing Cobra, it was Stallone in Laser Wolf. <laughs> or 
And in an infinite number of realities, there's also one word. Stallone did Fiddler on the Roof as Laser Wolf. Funny that you bring that up. Um, Stallone actually wrote the sequel to Saturday Night Fever. Saturday Night Fever, the one with uh, John Travolta? or Yeah, yes. yeah. He wrote the, uh, which is called Disco Inferno. He wrote that. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting movie. We We should do that movie at some point. Like a lot of, I, I, I bet you if people who know Saturday Night Fever that uh, the fact that I, I brought up that there's a sequel, didn't know that there was a sequel. Yeah, I think I had heard about it once, but forgotten and then reminded. <laughs> but but uh, uh, Disco Inferno is literally about a Broadway disco musical. So it's not out of the realm of possibility for Stallone to do a musical. <laughs> People give don't give Stallone enough credit. He is literally an actual credited writer on almost every single film he's been in. Yeah. Should get him to do the sequel to Fiddler. <laughs> <laughs> I, I shudder to think of what a sequel to... Like, you could actually make a sequel to Fiddler. And Stallone could be the voice that, that pushes that forward. Like... Would it be a, a, a tale of, you know, Tevier and the family in the... Where were they going? Were they going to... They were going to New York. So they were going to the New World as well. And Laser Wolf was going to Chicago. <laughs> so it could be a tale, like, a, a tale uh, of the New World, very much like Fievel, an American tale, <laughs> is basically mouse version of fiddler yeah hot take five an american tale is is literally the sequel to fiddler but with mice <laughs> the one the one thing i wouldn't want to see for a sequel of fiddler would be a modern interpretation of it like in new york with a bunch of like hipsters Oh, like modernizing. No, you. The, the whole point would be the Jewish experience of the turn of the century. And then it becomes mm -hmm. the immigrant experience of the turn of the century, which you could broaden out to all. Well, I mean, basically, if you want that, though, watch West Side Story. That's also true. West Side Story is probably one of the like modern interpretation of X that I'm actually like pretty OK with. Oh, you mean you like uh, Cuban and American uh uh, Romeo and Juliet. I do. I do. I also like musicals. So. I do too. I've never <laughs> seen a West Side Story. I, I've seen like, I think it was like a community theater production of it. <laughs> it was, it was decent. That's not to knock community theater. It's just when, when, I, when someone says community theater, it always brings up like a negative connotation in my mind, mm -hmm. but that's not true at all. Like the community theater productions that I, I have in my town are fantastic and like really good. I've seen uh, Singing in the Rain actually as a community theater production, which actually had rain inside. It was kind of a cool uh, Singing in the Rain sequence. Um, nice. I also saw... Uh, what is the the man from Lancha? That's the one about Don uh, Don Quixote. Don Quixote. the musical, yeah. correct? Yeah, and uh, a cool little thing they did is when he did the transition from uh, Cervantes. Is that it? It's a, it's a name. Is that the writer of Don Quixote? <laughs> I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> when when the the actor transitions from Don Quixote or from Cervantes to Don Quixote, he applied his own makeup. So that was pretty cool. Yeah.
There's some there's some interesting stuff to be done on stage, and I think uh... I think constraints allow a community theater to really become creative because they're not going to have the budget, the production value, the size to do everything as uh, as a movie or the the big screen productions or the big stage productions would. So go support your local community theater. <laughs> Oh, this is just this is just digressions. The episode. <laughs> Look, you were the one that posted that joke uh, from was it Clickhole or was it The Onion? That <laughs> game podcast becomes two hours of incomprehensible in jokes. <laughs> Pretty much, we're just we're just evolving so quickly. Third episode, and we're already. Digressions are fine as long as we get back to the point. Yeah. Uh, you were gonna, were you making a point about Lazar Wolf or? I was gonna say like I was just gonna go back to, you know, some of the changes they made for this movie, like versus the stage version. So you've seen the stage play? I've seen, yeah, I've seen a version of it, but I'm saying more like where Sound of Music, and this may just be like the difference of film evolving as well alongside this stuff. Sound of music is very much like, here's the position of the camera. We're going to focus on the action happening here. Well, one of the shots that stuck out to me in Fiddler on the Roof was when Seitzel and um, Modal have, you know, their special delivery. And it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's supposed to be like hinting at a kid, but it's actually a sewing machine. And they have that, they keep the camera at a very low angle, like looking up at everyone's faces as if it were coming out of a crib. But, you know, that's that's something like on the stage version, you would have, you know, a group of people huddled around something you can't see and they would, you know, open up. And, and yeah. the fact that it's shot in the movie one way versus how you would do it in the stage and those are separate things, you know, I think is is part of what makes this better than just here's a stage play on screen. They definitely used the uh, the medium of film as a better communicator of the story than a sound of music did. Like I was, mm -hmm. I was mentioning before, you know, with the this is the drama scene, this is the musical number. The blocking and the the camera was very static. I mean, again, you're owing also to an old like a different sensibility uh, with filmmaking and the, a different style of and you know thought of how to do it that was a very much studio driven style where this these are the cuts you make this is the pacing you do it is by the numbers editing whereas yeah. with fiddler on the roof you know just a few years later but it's the 70s it's 71 like you yeah. had a lot of drastic change with a the quality of film the size of cameras the thoughts and the way to do film was all up in the air that's when you have people coming on the scene like Scorsese with Mean Streets and and that era of filmmaker that had been to film school and they had a different take on how to do things. The multiple times when uh, Tevier has the aside, on the other hand, where he's weighing the pros and cons of breaking tradition and why it's done, but at the same time, he can't deny his daughter's happiness for all these things. You know, he... He's he stops the actual action and then like um is it a, a diopter lens or is it like just they they moved him away and they have the the actual people in the in the background now 
I think for that, they physically moved him farther away. And you get these really nice things where he's like, you know, weighing the pros and cons and he realizes, you know what, I should, my kid's happiness matters to me. Sure, I'm not mm-hmm. going to be a rich man, but I wouldn't have been a rich man to be, to begin with, you know, and who, what, what does it matter if the matchmaker didn't approve this match if they like each other? Yeah. I I do think that that's something that does happen on stage where you kind of have, have other a- other actors freeze. You know, you take the lights down, yeah, yeah, you put yeah, the spotlight on, a, on the one person. On the side is definitely a thing that happens, but the way it was handled to be like instantaneous, freeze mm-hmm. frame, he's all the way over there. You what you would get yeah. is what you were describing before I rudely interrupted you because I'm a bastard. Um, <laughs> no problem is you know exactly what you're saying the the spot the, the lights would go down on everyone else and the spotlight would focus on the person having the aside they would walk to center stage front center and they mm-hmm. would then do their aside whereas this yeah. like wasn't there when he would do on the other hand it would literally flip sides and it would be him like doing the both poses correct yeah they they'd kind of do that like uh, what is it called breaking of the center line or something where, you know, it's the thing you're not supposed to do in movie conversations, but you like literally switch the camera to the other side of the actor. Yeah. And so they do that again. That's something that you can, you can do that on the stage play, but it won't be as visually striking as it was in film. Yeah. W- one of the visually striking things they do in this film is um the like, semi-transparent set of eyes over a scene to like reinforce like okay this person is watching this happen or like you know imagine this from their viewpoint they do yeah. it twice in the movie once with the Seitzel's eyes and then once with uh, I believe Tevier it's kind of it was a little bizarre kind of <laughs> like okay yeah we're watching a movie I get it <laughs> a thing that this movie I think did well is set the period is you know it's before the Russian Revolution. It doesn't say any of this stuff, but you can infer it all very easily, mm-hmm. even with a cursory knowledge of what happened to Russia at the time. There's a, an agitator. He's from Ukraine, Pechik. I, or he's. I think he studied in Krakow, Poland, or one of the cities in Poland. He went to college there. So yeah, he's and the, then the learned young man, town. and he's. Why is he lazing about Anatevka? I do not remember. <laughs> it, it never addresses why he's in Anatevka, other than he is there because the plot demands he be there. <laughs> yeah. Earlier he was here, now, or earlier he was there, now he's here. Such is life. <laughs> Such is life in so- pre Soviet Russia. <laughs> you get an aside, uh, not an aside, uh, after uh, Tevier and Reb Laserwolf uh, agree to the marriage, they celebrate by going drinking. Uh, Reb Laserwolf, you know, pays for it all. You get a nice uh, cross uh, cultural like celebration where you know there's the Jews and the, the the Orthodox Christians in the same bar, but they're celebrating a marriage, so you get like these traditional Jewish dances and then traditional Russian Orthodox dances, Cossack dancing. Yeah. 
and then they're all having a good time. And it's like, oh, you know, everyone's getting along. It's great. We're not so different. And then as uh, Tevier is leaving, the uh, constable, I believe, is that the character's name or title? Yeah, yeah. Official constable, yeah, constable, I believe, is literally just his name. Uh, stops him and, like, you know, congratulates him. You know, they've grown up together, but he's very much a well, I'm an Orthodox Christian, and you know, Jews are the Christ killers. That's literally what his <laughs> his superior says to him. Actually, um, mm-hmm. bringing it down really real. Like, no, there are massive divides between these people. That you know, on a day to day, they might be fine, but like. He tells them there's going to be a purge, basically, where they come in and just wreck up Jewish people's shit because they're Jewish. Yeah. That's going to happen. And I'm letting you know because you're likable. And, you know, Tevye, you know, very says, like, you know, you're very likable for a Jew, the constable says. And then, you know, Tevye says, you know, you're a, very, you're a good person. If only you were Jewish. He's like, <laughs> that's why I like you always making jokes. And, you know, Tevier doesn't, you know, say anything, but like Tevier wasn't joking. Like, if you were right. Jewish, you'd understand what it's like. Yeah. And you, you get you get a bit of an arc in the constable that he really doesn't want to do this thing. He doesn't want to do it. He kind of like bristles at it with his superiors, but he goes through with anyway, you know, kind of a just following orders. He literally says that later on in the movie, doesn't he? I believe so, yeah. Or like, for instance, when he's at when he they all come in and crash the wedding, uh, you know they do their their destruction, their demonstration of like, hey, you're not welcome here. Yeah, they destroy a lot of the uh, the dowry that uh, that you know a, a down pillow and comforter, like really nice things for the the new married couple, and um, the the the. The brood squad wants to continue going through with it, but the constable stops them. That's enough. Yeah, it's kind of like, hey, we've made our point. Like, I'm not totally on board with this. Like, that's enough. Let's skedaddle. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about at the end of this movie is uh, it's kind of at the end when they're forced out of uh, Anatevka. Anatevka. I keep wanting to call it Arstotska, but that's papers, please. <laughs> Done. Done. <laughs> Done, done. One of the things they do when they leave uh, Anatevka is there's like two minutes of them just walking, which kind of struck me as like this weird flex on stage plays. It's like, you can't do this in a stage play. What are you going to do? Walk back and forth? Like, we're walking in the same direction for two minutes. Top that, Broadway. But probably well, not. I don't. I don't. I don't know if it was a flex. I don't know if it was a flex. I think it was to bring it down to the reality of this. Literally happened. You know, mm-hmm. these Jewish communities that lived here for centuries were forced out by the czar because it was convenient. Yeah, and then and then you get the fiddler also following them down the road. Yeah, the fiddler's kind of like a weird character who just kind of like shows up in different places and i guess well, he's tradition he's, yeah he's meant to represent tradition so he like shows up at the wedding and then you know shows up in the beginning of the movie obviously to play his like two minute solo over the credits which is an interesting thing to do i don't know i, I enjoyed the fiddle yeah i i did um but then like you know at the end of the movie the tradition the fiddler follows them out, you know, to where they're going, kind of how. Yeah, they, they will take their traditions with them, you yeah. know. 
I, I did make a point when we were watching it, though, that, you know, it is a shame from a historical standpoint, you know, all these synagogues and these old these old ways being lost because it's convenient. You know, the, yeah. the, they, they do, uh, they do multiple shots as they're leaving Anatevka of all the things they are leaving behind, you know, specifically the synagogue, all these illustrations on the synagogue walls and all that, that they'll be lost forever. You're never going to get that history back. Yeah. There's a long scene of them removing the Torah from the synagogue, which is, you know, there's definitely a lot of tribute paid to like, Hey, this, this is what they lost. This is what, you know, this is the, the tragedy of what happened. And definitely, I think part of the two minute sequence of walking at the end is like, take a moment, let this sink in, you know? Yeah. It definitely does that a lot better than say, you know, the sound of music that's set in an equally tumultuous time. It feels like so background until the very end in the sound of music that like the Nazis are coming, the Nazis are coming kind of thing. Whereas with Fiddler, they, they're constantly, it's, it's a constant reminder that bad things are going to happen and there's nothing really these people can do about it. You can forget about it for a time. You can enjoy a, a wedding. You can break some traditions <laughs> and have men dance with women at a wedding. Mm -hmm. But, you know, overall, like, you know, this is set in the past. We know how it turns out for these Jewish communities. I really did like um, in this film, you know, how there's the on the other hand moments. And, you know, for the first two daughters, he's able to, you know, let them do what they, they do, even though he was a little upset with the way, you know, uh, Pechik was just saying, it's going to happen. Uh, Perchik, it's going <laughs> to happen. Like, you don't you don't have a say in it. He was like, what? <laughs> Didn't have the same tact that maybe uh, Modal had. Well, at least, you know, Modal and uh, Seitzel, you know, he's known them both. And Modal, yeah, he's poor, but, you know, she'll never be cold because he makes clothes. What, is, what does Perchik have? Being a shiftless layabout revolutionary agitator? <laughs> also, like, when he proposes, he, he talks about it like this certain economic benefit you know, to like getting married frames it in this very like socialist communist, whatever policy. There is no romance. There is only the state. <laughs> it's like, you know, in certain situations, it can be economically viable for two people to join together. <laughs> it's very corpse speak for, will you marry me? Yeah. Hodel's just like, are you asking me to marry you? Like, I feel like that's what you're doing. Oh, it was funny. But then, you know, he, he agrees. It's like, you know, who am I to stop my daughter being happy? Mm -hmm. But then when um, Fedka and uh, Shava, uh, you know, want to have the blessing, uh, that's where it kind of breaks down and you get the, the third and final, you know, on the other hand, like he's almost there. He's almost mm -hmm. there, but in the end, tradition just weighs out, and he's like, no. It, nope, not gonna happen. If you marry him, you're no daughter of mine. And he's really serious. Uh, she elopes with Fedka, and uh, converts to Christianity to marry him. And I, I kind of didn't like that relationship, just because you didn't see enough time for it to grow. 
you're gonna see like you see one like two scenes of them being close and friendly with each other correct uh mm-hmm. fedka stopping some other boys from uh harassing shava and then fedka and shava talking about it briefly with shava kind of not knowing it to her father and uh to fedka yeah, I think you get a you get a scene of like all the guys kind of going to talk to him, getting intimidated, backing out, which was which was yeah. pretty good. It goes to show you that uh, Tevier is an imposing man, even if he is affable. Yeah. Oh gosh, what was that scene early on? Uh, it's when Pershing first comes in. Uh, they're talking about it's the match. It's just after the matchmaker, and he's like, cons- he's doing. What does he do? Uh... Oh no, he um, he's taught. Is it when he's talking about breaking the match or something like that? And he's like, uh, prayers, and like <laughs> constantly like stopping Goldie from talking. Yeah, she's telling she uh, Goldie had just met with the matchmaker. The matchmaker said, "Hey, you know." laser wolf would be a great match for your daughter and then he also she, then originally she, thinks it's about a dairy cow yeah goldie is trying to tell him like hey you have to go she's being like kind of um coy about it just being like hey you got to go talk to laser wolf about something something Sabbath. Yeah, and he's just like starting the prayer and she's just like all right i'm in you just go, go talk to him i also i also liked this scene a little earlier when uh Tevier's talking and he's like you know as the good book says or you know as so and so said and the guy's like actually that was Moses (laughs) (laughs) he brings up another quote he's like that was also Moses I guess he did a lot of talking yeah (laughs) I'm sure it says somewhere and it's funny as the good book says a guy who can't read yeah (laughs) there's only one guy in the village for the most part I think Perishik can read yeah Perishik can read but there's one of the village that can read that reads them the news. Yeah, they they may be able to read Hebrew, but not whatever I guess Russian that the uh, newspapers printed in. Possibly, it would be Cyrillic. Yeah, you got it what I meant. It would be Cyrillic. Cyrillic, the language, the 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 written language of the Russian people. Thanks, Google. <laughs> So yeah, I, I I thoroughly enjoyed Fiddler on the Roof, and I, I liked those really grounded, down to earth. Like we cut the music, we cut everything, and like we let it sink in that this is a serious moment. Yeah, definitely better than um, like the orchestral version of a few of my favorite things playing like underneath this tense moment in the in the convent. So I guess we're going right into the summary and our final <laughs> thoughts. Um, yeah, I, I feel like we've said our piece about Fiddler. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, that really tense moment like where this kid has a gun on uh, Georg, and it's really undercut by this like just different tempo, different key, few of my favorite things. It's like, that's not the song I would choose for this at all. Yeah. And it mean I can't remember if it plays like during that scene specifically, but definitely like pulling up to the con the convent, like that's what's playing and it's just kinda like Fiddler on the Roof, I guess, had John Williams to compose. That is true. That it's a bit unfair <laughs> when they have John motherfucking Williams. Yeah, truly. 
you know, they had John Williams to compose, I guess, some of the um, uh, what, interstitial music. Incidental. Incidental, yeah. Yeah, I think I think the six years of progress between the sound of music and Fiddler on the Roof, and also I, Fiddler on the Roof was um, made by United Artists, where uh. Uh, sound of music was made by I think Universal MGM. So that's actually a very interesting dichotomy that you get. This is a little bit of a history lesson for those that don't know. United Artists was founded by a United. Uh, screen artists to be their own production company to make movies more artistically rather than the studio method which was overbearing pervasive and really draconian in its scope for artists at the time uh, one of the founding artists was charlie chaplin and a few others of the silent and talking picture era and it was really a change in the wind for hollywood because you you had people able to have artistic and creative freedom to make films the way they wanted and do things the way that they felt rather than be it. Like, again, it's a point I've made multiple times. It has to be this way because it is this way. It is tradition. (laughs) Finding (laughs) that a movie that literally is the theme is tradition and change is more of a sign of change than it is the tradition. Yeah. I'm just trying to look up who did Sound of Music is 20th Century Fox. Yeah, it would be the production company. Which, you didn't get more studio than Fox, Universal, and MGM. Yeah. Now they're almost all Disney. <laughs> yeah, frighteningly. Fiddler on the Roof was also um, United Artists' biggest budget film of that year. Kind of took it. Kind of took a chance on, on making a musical when they were, I guess, starting to fall out of favor. Yeah, the, the the 70s into the 80s is kind of the downfall of the United Artists uh, label. It was just mismanagement and misbudgeting. Um, they had relied on the Bond films, if I don't miss my guess, for a lot of yeah. their money. That's where I recognize their logo from is because that was another mo- movies I watched as a kid was all the Bond movies. Which uh, we've definitely talked about, and we'll just uh, you know teaser here that we definitely want to do like a Bond retrospective episode. Yeah, especially because they're all on Netflix, or at least appear to be. Also, fun fact: uh, Topol Tevier uh, was in um, the Living Daylights. Nope, for your eyes only. For your eyes only. That's right. I just watched it too, but it's 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 interesting. Uh, Never mind. I'm not going to talk about Bond <laughs> films on our podcast about fucking Fiddler on the Roof and the Sound I mean, of Music. we've already well, talked about the Avengers and Endgame. <laughs> yeah, but that was the intro. This is the outro. Let's keep it more right. on track. Um, yeah. I, so I, but I think it's pretty clear that we both enjoyed Fiddler on the Roof much more than I'm, I'm curious to see that two-hour edit. But I would, I'm much more interested in seeing Fiddler again because of how different it is i mean it's use of actual traditional folk instruments of the jewish people and of russian people was very well done the 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 combining of actual traditional dance and traditional song whereas Mm -hmm. you know let's make up a traditional song and say it's traditional song and then play it five times they did make up the bottle on the head dance in Fiddler, at least. They did, yes. There's a little but bit like, of that. You know, you gotta you gotta dress it up a little bit for a movie. 
Right, but that seems like that doesn't seem completely out of place. Like I could see someone doing that and it becoming a tradition. Yeah, I think that I think the story was that in research for the movie, one of the guys had seen someone do that at a wedding or like seen a photo of it or something. So actual people did that, you know, at one point. You know, that's another thing in Fiddler's favor is there was actual research put into the creation of the the film. Yeah. Whereas the uh, something we didn't touch on is the sound of music is a true story is actually a true story. There was a Von Trapp family, Captain Georg, Maria, the Von Trapp children. Uh, mm-hmm. Something that I brought up when we were watching it is that uh, the Von, the surviving Von Trapp kids at one point said, yeah, the sound of music isn't close to reality with our father at all. They, 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 they recall their father being a warm, loving, caring individual who wasn't this cold military man that was distant after the death of the wife that Maria, you know, melted the heart of. Like, I believe Maria did marry Georg, but they the kids actually didn't like Maria. Yeah, it's kind of a, a role reversal. More of maybe closer to their attitude about the Baroness. I don't know. I guess we never really talked about the Baroness either, but, you know. She's kind of in there and out of there pretty quickly. She's just like... I mean, really, the film doesn't focus on too many characters other than uh, Georg, the Von Trapp kids, Maria, and Max, and... Is that the Baroness the one you're talking about? The, the, yeah. Yeah. The one that Georg is engaged to. And was sort of in love with, but then he realizes he's kind of in love with Maria. Yeah. So... As far as watching Fiddler on the Roof again, let me give you this recommendation. Don't do it a week from now. <laughs> put put some time in there. I'd say for both of these movies, I think these are both good movies to revisit like once a year, especially because of their length. But I think that's the right time to kind of let that stew, let that fade into pleasant memory, and then, you know, watch it again once a year. Or just listen to some of the songs from it because they're they're bangers. Absolutely. Yeah. Both, both movies, great music, I guess both plays. I don't know. Do we have to make that distinction anymore? They're, no, they both have, they both have great songs. Um, In the immortal words of James Roday, I've heard it both ways. <laughs> yes. Yes, you have. So I guess that'll do it for uh, this episode of match cut. You want to tease, uh, tease next episode. So the next episode will feature uh, a man with no name. Side programming note. We'll actually get to watch this one in the same room. Isn't that exciting? Wow. We <laughs> golly gee. So join us. Uh, join us for that episode. If you'd like to get a hold of us, I guess we're on Twitter now uh, at match cut. You can email us at matchcutpod at gmail.com. With all your pressing comments and concerns, tell us to get back on track and record an episode without talking about the Avengers. We we legit now. We we, we got some we we got bona fide. <laughs> yep. Uh still waiting on iTunes to legitimize us completely, but that's coming. We're on soon. Spotify. That's like that's like the Zillennial iTunes. Yeah. We're out we're out here, basically. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we will uh, see you next time. Peace. Bye-bye.